if you were like me, um, sometimes you forget something that you're going to do or something you're going to say. Does anybody ever do that? You think stuff, you remember, right? If you're like me, oftentimes that happens because you like walk into another room. Have you ever done that where you're in one room and you get up to go do something, you step maybe from the living room into the kitchen, you get to the kitchen and you're like, now why did I come in here? Does anybody ever do that? Well, I've got good news. That's not Alzheimer's, okay? That's not because you're getting old. There's an actual uh, name for this. It's called the threshold effect or the doorway effect. And what scientists have discovered is that when that oftentimes we our minds hold information loosely because it knows it's temporary, right? There's only so much space up here, amen? I mean, you can only cram so much. So there are some things that your brain kind of holds loosely out here so that as soon as you're done with it, it can kind of throw it in the, in the trash can, right? And, and so what happens is when you're walking from one room to the next, all of a sudden your mind processes, I'm in a different place. There's new information to process, and that thing that it was holding loosely because it was just, oh, I need to go, you know, I'm thirsty, I want to get a cup of water, it loses it. It just kind of tosses it out as soon as you walk into a new room, which is why you get in there and you're like, what was I going to do in here again? But then if you kind of backtrack into the other room, it's like your brain sees that piece of information and picks it back up, and you go, oh, yeah, that's right, I was going to get a glass of water. That made me feel so much better. There's an actual scientific explanation. It's the way that our brains were built by God. And I've also discovered that for preachers, there's a thing called the pulpit effect. Okay, if you've ever given me a bit of news or information, somebody's going to the prayer list, make this announcement, you walk away, I promise you, my brain has tossed it right out, right? Because I've just crammed it full of sermon. So, uh, so that's why sometimes I'll say, email that to me. Can you email that to me? Can you write that down for me? Because it's the pulpit effect. Very similar. We know sometimes we suffer this same effect as followers of Jesus. Sometimes we forget these things. In John 20, 21, Jesus, after his resurrection, told his disciples, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. We are a sent people. We're a people on a mission, and we call that mission the Great Commission. Again, in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus told his followers, Go. We are a sent people. A people on a mission. But we struggle to stay focused on that mission. Just as I might walk from one room into the next and forget why I'm there, what I'm supposed to do, or where I'm going... The same thing happens in our spiritual life. Sometimes we forget, I think, when we walk out of these doors on Sunday, it's like we leave worship, we get home, and we promptly forget why we're here. What we're supposed to be doing. Where we're supposed to be going. And that's why it's so important for us to remind ourselves regularly about the Great Commission. It's why we plaster the church purpose statement everywhere we can. It's why we work it into cornerstone articles and we put it on posters and I work it into my sermon. It's to remind us regularly who we are, why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing because we so easily get distracted and forget. And that's why it might feel like I preach on the Great Commission every other Sunday. I promise it only feels that way. All right, But I pray that our journey through the Bible this year can give us a fresh perspective on the Great Commission. 
I hope that you can see that this isn't something that Jesus kind of just came up with on the fly, but that this reflects the very heartbeat of God from the beginning. When God created Adam and Eve, He made them to bear His image into the world. They were His ambassadors, if you will, to the rest of creation. His agents to rule over the earth, to take His good world and to continue to do good things with it. God would later reissue that same directive to Noah and his children. And then God called Abraham. God called Abraham so that through him he could create for himself a new nation, a new family who would bear his image to the lost and sinful nations and families around them. The people of Israel were to be God's ambassadors, His priests, to represent God in His ways to the rest of the world. God said that He would bless Israel so they in turn could bless others with the knowledge of God. And God ultimately did that through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus God in human flesh was that ultimate way made possible through Abraham's line. And, and, and he, he came as the fullest embodiment of God's image. Pure, undefiled. Jesus lived the life God intends for all of us to live and He died the death that all of us deserve to die. He came to be that blessing to all peoples. And through His death and resurrection and through His indwelling Holy Spirit, God once again created for Himself a new family, a new people on the earth, the church. And through us to reach all tribes and all nations that that family could grow and expand. We are the ones that God is now called to bear His image, His very Spirit into the world. The light of God Himself indwells us and we are to shine it in every dark corner of creation. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So as you can see, the Great Commission wasn't given in a vacuum. It has a context. It has a history that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's a mandate that just as Christ was sent as the culmination of God's great rescue plan, we are sent as the continuation of God's great rescue plan. And we stand on the shoulders of Abraham and Moses and Israel and the prophets and the apostles with Jesus as our foundation. And our job is the same as theirs, to go into all the world, bearing His image, shining the light of Christ, proclaiming the good news that Jesus saves and forgives and restores. And we are to make more disciples to help us carry out that mission and that message. So this morning I want us to look at that at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Maybe for you this morning this is new stuff. Maybe it's more like a refresher course. But either way, it's something we all need to be reminded of regularly. And either way, I want to keep this simple for us this morning. So let's look at Matthew 28, verses 18, 19, and 20. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely 
I am with you always to the very end of the age. Just keep your Bibles open right there. We're going to sort of pick this apart a little bit in a way that can hopefully help you to remember it and understand it. Really, the Great Commission consists of one command, three principles, and two promises. And the one command is this. We are to make disciples of all nations. That's the command. And yes, it is a command. That's why we call it the Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion. Jesus commands us to do this. He expects it of us. This is clearly an imperative. And it's one that Jesus repeats many times throughout the Gospels. It's one that God repeats multiple times throughout the Bible, as Kelly read for us this morning, even in Jeremiah. We are sent to go and to proclaim a message. We looked at John 20, 21 this morning. Jesus said that as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. We've, talked, we've read Matthew 28. Jesus also gives a similar commission in Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. In Acts 1, 8, Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes on us, we'll have the power to go out and be His witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, going to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. When Jesus called His disciples, He told them to follow Him so He could make them, what? Fishers of men. And Jesus not only taught these things and commanded these things, He modeled these for us. Jesus' entire ministry was one of going and proclaiming and making disciples. As a pastor and as a youth minister, I have discovered that people, one of the things people really struggle and wrestle with is, is knowing God's will. People are always concerned about Knowing God's will. What is God's will for me? Maybe it's the high school senior that's praying for God to show them their will about where they're supposed to go to school or, or what career path they're to follow. Maybe it's the young adult who's praying for God's will and who they're supposed to marry and, and build their life with. Maybe it's the professional who's seeking God's will about a promotion that's been offered to them and whether they should move uh, to a new town to pursue that. Maybe it's a church that's praying and seeking for God's will in, in a staffing hire, calling a pastor or, or establishing a budget or, or what color the sanctuary carpet should be. You know, important things. And I'm not dismissing the gravity of those. Well, not most of them at least. Nor that we should care deeply about God's specific will for our lives in specific areas. That's, that's great. But there are some things we can know with certainty is God's will for us. God has explicitly told us His overarching will for our lives. And so if we're not doing the one thing that God has plainly told us is His will for our lives, doesn't it seem just a little bit disingenuous to be so concerned about praying for His will in specific areas of our lives? The Great Commission tells you plainly what God's will is for your life. That as you go about your life, you would make disciples. That you would help them connect with the community of disciples, the church, and that you would teach them to live in the way of Jesus. Are you doing that? If you are, then you're living in God's will in obedience to Him. If you're not, then you're not. Our church... We have a distinct place of ministry. Thompson, McDuffie County, Georgia. We have a host of programs and, 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 and events and activities that we offer to our, our community. But everything we do must be about fulfilling this one mission or we are not being the church. 
We can be busy. We can do a lot of good things. But if we're not making disciples of all nations, we are not being what Jesus Christ created us and has called us to be. We are called to spread Christ's rule on earth through making disciples, to share the good news of the King who conquered death, and to call all creation to submit to His rule and reign. That's what we're to be doing. And that requires more than just meeting people's needs. That requires more than just preaching the gospel and even winning the lost. The Great Commission isn't accomplished unless people are being discipled in the ways of Jesus as members of a local church. If that's not happening, the Great Commission is not being done. But what does that mean to make disciples? What is that one mission? You know, that's the only imperative in this whole passage, make disciples. All the other verbs in there are, are, are modifying that imperative. So go, baptize, teach, modify the imperative, make disciples. So how do we do that? Well, to put it simply, we tell other people about Jesus, we call them to follow Him, and then we help them along that journey of being made more and more like Jesus. That's what it means to make a disciple. And these other three verbs give us three principles for exactly how we do that. Let's look at those three principles. The first one is go. We are to intentionally go and pursue people. Now, go is pretty straightforward, isn't it? When somebody says go, there's not a lot of questions what that means, is there? Go. It means that we must do more than just pray for others to go. Now, don't get me wrong. Prayer is essential. Many times in his letters, the Apostle Paul asked others to, quote, pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. That's a great prayer for us to pray for ourselves, too. Paul often prayed for the gospel to bear fruit and grow around the world. But see, Paul put his prayers to action because he actually went out and preached the gospel. He actually went out and won the lost. He went out and made disciples and planted churches. If we just stop at praying so others can go, then we're not fulfilling the Great Commission. Go means more than just going on occasion. We provide opportunities through the year to go on mission. Honduras, Gatlinburg, West Virginia, disaster relief opportunities. We also go locally through Mission McDuffie, Vacation Bible School, Upward Basketball, drive through Nativity, Trunk or Treat. We have so many missional service and evangelistic opportunities. And we want everyone to be involved at least in a few of these every year. But again, there's a danger that we do our one and done moment of service and feel like I've accomplished the Great Commission now. Don't means we have to do more than just pray. And again, prayer is great. We just had a week of prayer for Georgia missions. We need to pray for our missionaries. But we, have, we can't stop there. It means that we've got to do more than just go on occasion. It means that we've got to do more than just give for others to go. And again, giving is important. We should be investing in the, in the worldwide mission of God through our tithes and offerings. We must give for others to go where we can't go. But the Great Commission can't just stop at praying and giving and going on occasion. It, it, on occasion, it means that we must go about our lives. Work, school, grocery store, vacation, ball field. We must go about our daily lives with our eyes open and our hearts ready for the opportunity when the Holy Spirit prods us to share the good news with someone else. 
as we go about our lives. The Greek word translated go really is better translated as you go. Yes, we go intentionally on a mission trip or for a trunk or treat or even to that neighbor down the street that you want to invite to church. Yes, we intentionally go, but we also intentionally live our lives on the go as disciple makers. In John 20, 21, Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Well, what was Jesus sent to do? In Luke 19, 10, He said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus came to passionately pursue those who were far from God. He went where they were. He shared table fellowship with them. He met their needs. But it was all for the purpose of changing their lives by His transforming grace. And we must do the same. We must make disciples by going. Not just once, not just twice, but continuously throughout our daily lives. We must go. The second principle is that we must baptize. That means we involve them in the local church. You see, for someone to be baptized, it means they've made a profession of faith in Jesus. It means they've repented of their sins. They've trusted in Jesus to forgive them of those sins. And they've committed their lives to following Jesus. They have identified themselves with Him and with His church. And baptism is the way that followers of Jesus obediently show that they have received new life in Christ. It's not optional. Baptism is the first act of obedience for a follower of Jesus. So this morning, maybe you are here and you're a Christian. You've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but for whatever reason, you've not been baptized. Why are you holding that back? If you love Jesus, if you truly want to follow Jesus, you must follow Him in believer's baptism. He commanded it. Let others know, let this church know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you want to celebrate that and proclaim that through baptism. In baptism, we identify with Jesus' crucifixion and His resurrection. It's a beautiful moment and a beautiful picture of God's grace. But also when Jesus tells us to baptize disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, He's instructing us to incorporate every disciple into a community of disciples who identify themselves by the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, true discipleship cannot happen apart from a local New Testament church. Jesus didn't call people to follow Him individually on their own timetable with no thought or commitment to anyone else. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus called a group of disciples. And He often taught about how His disciples are to treat each other. He said that the key mark for someone to know that you belong to Him is the way you love other disciples. Discipleship can only happen in the context of the local church. And and even more specific than that, it can really only happen effectively in a small group. This is why Jesus did His deepest teachings, not to the crowds, but to the twelve. And even beyond that, to the smaller group of three, Peter, James, and John. And that is why Sunday school and other small groups in our church are so vital to your spiritual health. But that really leads us into our third principle, and that is teach. Teach. We are to invest in them by discipling them. 
This is what Jesus was doing with the twelve every day. As they ate with him, as they walked along the road with him, as they witnessed him do miracles and heard him preach. He was training them not only to be disciples, to be followers, but to make disciples, to make more followers of Jesus. If you're a Christian and a follower of Jesus, guess what? You can't do that alone. And I encourage you today to deepen your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Deepen your spiritual walk with the Lord by being a part of a Sunday school class. And beyond that, I encourage you to consider who God might want you to meet with at work, at school, at home, that you could begin to disciple. And you say, well, David, how do I do that? Well, there's a lot of tools and resources that we can help you with that. I'll throw two out right now. One is uh, Francis Chan's book, Multiply. It is a great primer on what it means to be a Christian and a disciple. What is the church? How do you read your Bible? What is the Holy Spirit? How do you pray? You know, it, it does a, a quick run through the Old Testament, the New Testament. Francis Chan's Multiply is a great book that anybody in this room could sit down with that book and someone else, lead them through it a chapter a week, and disciple somebody. The Bible Project. Get some friends and say, hey, next year, or, or let's start in, in September, or, you know, or I mean in November, let, let's start reading the Bible through together. I've got a reading plan for you and some great videos to watch, and let's just get together once a week over coffee and talk about it. It's easy. It's simple. Spend time with someone, invest in them, and help them know what it means to follow Jesus. Being a disciple must include making disciples. That's what the Great Commission commands us. And as a church, if we're not training Christians in obeying Jesus and sharing the gospel so that others can be saved, added to the church, and obeying Jesus, then we're failing at our mission. And the same goes for us as individual Christians. If we're not bringing others into relationship with Jesus, into fellowship with His church, and equipping them to go out and do the same, then we are not being fishers of men. The discipleship process is not complete until you are making disciples and sending them out to make more disciples. We're talking about what, what Kelly demonstrated for us here. It's spiritual reproduction. In Paul's letters, you know, he wrote letters to the churches he planted, to disciples he trained like Titus and Timothy, and he often used the analogy of parents and children. Paul saw himself as the spiritual parent, and these churches and these disciples were like his spiritual children. My question for you is, how many spiritual children do you have? How many born-again believers are out there because of you? And once they were born again, did you just abandon them like, like an infant on the side of the road? Or did you bring them into a family of faith? Did you feed them and teach them how to feed themselves? And isn't that what parents do? And isn't that what we hope is that our children grow up to be good parents themselves? Right? Well, the same is true for us as Christians. As disciples of Jesus, we must be deployed to raise up spiritual children, to train them and release them to do the same. That is how in 70 years the church grew from 120 in the upper room to over 1 million. You know, addition produces incremental growth. But multiplication produces exponential growth. And I think for too long, we've been content to try to grow the kingdom of God by addition. 
And that's why the church is losing ground. The Great Commission doesn't say go make believers. It says go make disciples. It does not call us to add. It calls us to multiply. One person telling one person. And that one person telling one person while you're telling another person. That's multiplication. You don't tell your one person and say, I'm done. Take me home, Jesus. Because he just might do it. (laughs) He's left you here so you can keep telling people about him. Someone once asked, how did a poor carpenter from a forsaken enslaved nation change the history of the world? The answer was he used the power of multiplication. Raising up disciple-makers who multiply more disciple-makers may be a slow process, but Francis Chan says it is the fastest way to fulfill the Great Commission. I agree. It's the only way that we can be a healthy, growing church in obedience to Christ and making kingdom impacts in the world. Now, all of this probably seems daunting to you. It's a monumental task. Nothing short of the hope of the world rests on Jesus' church fulfilling His great commission. And you probably don't feel up to the task. You may not feel worthy of it. You may not feel capable of proclaiming and teaching and making disciples. I know how you feel. Every Christian knows how you feel. You know, I like a good superhero movie. Anybody like to watch superhero movies? I love superhero movies. There was a really good one that came out this summer called Wonder Woman. If you've not seen it, I encourage you to go see it. Excellent film. The last line in the movie is spoken by Wonder Woman, and she says this. I used to want to save the world, to end war and bring peace to mankind, but then I glimpsed the darkness that lives within their light. I learned that inside every one of them there will always be both. The choice each must make for themselves, something no hero will ever defeat. I've touched the darkness that lives in between the lights, seen the worst of this world and the best, seen the terrible things men do to each other in the name of hatred and the links they'll go to for love. Now I know only love can save this world. So I stay, I fight, and I give for the world I know can be. This is my mission now and forever. We do live in a dark world. None of us can ever really change that. We can't make people's choices for them. We can't really save the world ourselves. But that's why Jesus gives us these two amazing promises. The first one, Jesus promises us His authority. He says right at the beginning of this passage that all authority in heaven and on earth are His And then he says, therefore, go. We can go because Jesus has authority. His authority is the foundation of the Great Commission. Our King has absolute authority over everything and everyone in creation. This should give us boldness to go out into this world as His ambassadors. Even a world that's in opposition to God and His kingdom. We don't go anywhere that Jesus isn't sovereign. Amen? We don't see anyone over whom Jesus does not have power and authority. He has power and authority over every person on this planet. And every person on this planet is someone Jesus died to redeem. You will never go to share the gospel with someone that Jesus is not already at work in their life and that He does not love and desire to see come to faith in Him. Therefore, we can boldly go and proclaim 
the good news of Jesus Christ. We can lovingly speak truth into the lives of others. And we must unapologetically follow Jesus and make disciples because all authority is His. The second promise is that His presence is always with us. Jesus' authority and His presence is always with us. Yes, on our own, the Great Commission is impossible to carry out. It is a huge and daunting task. And we do face supernatural opposition. Both Paul and Jesus warned us that we will face trouble and opposition and even persecution in this world for the sake of Christ. But while that opposition is real and it can be scary, Jesus concluded this Great Commission with the promise, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus promised His authority and presence in Matthew 28, but in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, He also promised us His Holy Spirit and power. We have the authority, we have the presence, and we have the power of Jesus Christ to be His witnesses. And the Wonder Woman movie got it right. No mere hero can ever save the world, eradicate evil, or change the human heart. Only love can save this world. But it's not just any love. It's the love of God displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ. And as the last words of the movie say, so I stay. I fight. I give. For the world I know can be, this is my mission now and forever. Just imagine... Jesus being physically by your side while you go and fight and pray and give and share. Because we do know the world that can be and someday will be when Jesus Christ returns to all peoples. And so we share Jesus. We pray with our co-workers. We invite our friends to church. We pray for and give to and go on mission to the ends of the earth. This is our mission now and until Jesus Christ returns in glory. And it is my prayer that God will give each of us a sense of urgency for sharing the gospel. A deep and abiding burden for the lost. And an overwhelming confidence in His authority, His presence, and His power with us always. Someone here this morning maybe needs to become a follower of Jesus. You know, you can't make disciples until you become a disciple. You can't go and tell until you first come and see Jesus for yourself. Maybe this morning the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you and you know that you need to come, confess and repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He's calling you to come follow Him. Will you follow Him today? Maybe someone here this morning is a follower of Jesus, but you've never made that first act of obedience. You've never entered the waters of baptism to proclaim fearlessly and boldly that you belong to Jesus Christ. Would you come this morning so that you can take that first step of obedience? Maybe there are others here who need to unite with our church to join us in making disciples of all nations. Or maybe this morning God has convicted you about your prayer life, about your giving, about needing to be involved in a Sunday school class. Maybe God has impressed someone on your heart that you know is lost and need to confess that you've been placing your comfort over their eternal destiny. You've not been sharing the gospel with them. Maybe God has placed someone on your heart this morning, a burden for some Christian that you know needs to be discipled, and you know that as, as imperfect as you are, God wants to do it through you.
The altar is open for you to come and pray and respond as the Holy Spirit of God directs and as we stand and sing about how Jesus has sent us. Would you stand?